to have the opportunity to uh, be here with you this morning. Just a little bit offended that I didn't get invited to dance with the girls. Um, I knew, need a few new life... Ex- it's not that funny. Always looking for new you know, life experiences to add to my life story resume, and that one certainly would have qualified. Um, but this is actually my first time back speaking in a church uh, since my health issue back in October when I had my heart attack, and I know many of you are familiar with that, and many of you have been praying for me. And uh, just by way of update, for those of you that are not friends with me on Facebook or don't get read my pr- uh, prayer letter, but uh, basically I had a triple bypass in 2009, and uh, two of those three bypasses are plugged, and they decided when they went in here in October that... The best way to manage my situation was through medication rather than uh, repairing something, which to me is a little less assuring than when they go in and fix something. And um, I was anticipating being, you know, back to normal, you know, in six weeks after the heart attack. And uh, lo and behold, six weeks, you know, my energy level was still not anywhere near where it needed to be. And um, so the the update, um, things are progressing. I saw my cardiologist this last week, and we're planning to do some further testing at the end of March to see if my heart pumping function has improved any from the last test in December. Um, In addition to the coronary artery disease that I've had for 23 years, I also have some damage to my heart itself from the the heart attack. But um, those of you that have known me for a while know that this is not my first go-round with heart issues. Uh, My first heart attack was actually in 1993 when I was um, at a pastor's conference at Letourneau Camp and uh, playing in the annual Pastor Layman softball game and uh, started to have some discomfort and went and got the camp director and um, ended up in F.F. Thompson Hospital in Canandaigua for six days. And that was only about five years after I left staff at Family Life Ministries. Um, I was still good friends with a lot of people there. And so they actually asked for prayer for me over the radio network, which, of course, was much smaller in those days. And so as a result of that, people all across western New York knew my heart situation. And I found that for months after that, wherever I would go, there would be two questions people would ask me. The first one is, how are you doing? And the second one was, are you afraid of having another heart attack? And though I've actually had two more since then, I could honestly tell people at the time, no, I didn't live in fear of another heart attack. But this morning, I'd like to share with you what I would consider one of my greatest fears. Um, Before I do that, I'd like to ask you what your greatest fear in life might be. For some people, their greatest fear in life is that they would be a failure. Some people, their greatest fear in life is that they would be poor and not be able to find a job. For some married men, their greatest fear in life is getting that call into the office one day that the company is downsizing and discovering they no longer have an income to support their family. Um, I was on a retreat at my cabin a few weeks ago and um, making supper, and one of the uh, gals, one of the leaders in her 30s came up to me and she said, Could she ask me a personal question? And I said, fine. And as we conversed while I was making supper for the next 10 or 15 minutes, I discovered that one of her greatest fears in life is that she would never get married and never have kids. 
So in your life, what is your greatest fear? If I were to answer that question, I would probably say in my life, it's that in light of all the blessing and exciting years of ministry that God has given me, my greatest fear is that one day I would wake up and find myself far from God. Now, I'd like to think that couldn't happen, but I realize that if I focus on the prosperity in my life, if I focus on the accomplishments, I could very easily begin a process of drifting. You see, over the years, I've known too many strong Christians who drifted from God. I think of a couple who got married and they got busy and just kind of drifted away from church and away from Christian things. I'm thinking right now of a teenage girl who started dating a guy who was not a believer. And in the process, she drifted from God. I'm thinking of a man who worked a job and suddenly his schedule changed and he was required to work on Sunday and he started missing church. And then as his schedule got changed again and Sunday opened back up, he never really got plugged back in to church. And he drifted from God. I can think of couples that had marital problems. And they went to their pastor, their church, for counsel, and they didn't get solutions to save their marriage. And they got turned off to church. And they drifted from God. I'm thinking of a young lady who grew up in a Christian home who had everything going for her, won awards in her church for scripture memory and other things growing up. She went off to a Christian college, and at the Christian college, she got into a wrong crowd and drifted from God. This morning, I'd like to think that I'm too godly, that I'm immune from drifting, that there's no way it could happen to me. But the reality is this morning that just as quickly as word in 1993, spread across New York State. Hey, did you hear about Brian Shuffler in his 30s? Um, he was healthy, he was active, he had a heart attack. I realized this morning that just as quickly word could spread, hey, did you hear about Brian Shuffler? He went out and did such and such, and he's drifted from God. This morning, I'm a candidate for drifting. This morning, you are a candidate for drifting. This morning, I know that I'm a candidate because I know my own weaknesses, my own habits, and my own tendencies. But I also know this morning that I'm a candidate for drifting because I've been reading the biography of a great Christian man. A young man who, in his early days, had a relationship to God so unique that I could only desire to know God like he did. It's reported of this young man that God appeared to him twice in human form. It's reported that he was a brilliant man when it came to insight, to the point that people around the world came just to hear his wisdom. He was that brilliant, both on spiritual and other matters. This man, in his biography, it's reported that he's a great builder, that in his day he built two buildings that were amazing. This man was a great author. He wrote three books in his time that were on the bestseller list and continue on bestseller list to this day. And yet this young man whose biography I've been reading in the early stages of his life made one decision that started him down a path of drifting. If you have your Bibles with, me this, with you this morning, you also have a copy of this man's biography. 
We're going to take a look this morning at Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, who John has been preaching about. And so I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 with me. Um, the scripture is not going to be on the overhead this morning. I don't have any uh, fill-in notes. I don't have a three-point outline. You've got to go with what I am and who I am. We'll have to use written pages again, or for the young generation, the ones on your phone. What I'd like to do before we look at our main passage this morning, I'd like to just briefly skim a few chapters and get a little background on Solomon. We start out in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, where the scripture says at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now, if God appeared to you in a dream and asked for whatever you want from God, We'd have an assortment of different things this morning. Some would ask for material things. Some would ask for relationships. Some would ask for power and prestige. But Solomon did not ask for any of those things. He didn't ask for anything selfish. But in verse 9, it says, he said, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. God was so impressed with Solomon's unselfish answer to that question, and in verse 12, he says, I'll do what you've asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I'll give you what you've not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. That's the guy we're going to talk about this morning. The last verse of the chapter when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Over in chapter 4, verse 20, we discover that the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate and they drank and they were happy. In the history of the nation of Israel, this was a time of prosperity. Things were going well because of Solomon's leadership. Then later in the chapter here, verse 32, And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. The last verse of chapter 4, Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Chapter 6, we have an account of the seven years it took Solomon to build his own palace. I'm sorry, the, the temple. In, verse, in chapter 7, we have the account of him building his palace. And during all this time, Solomon walked with God. We go over to chapter 8, verse 23. And we discover that in, the, in his prayer of dedication for the temple, he said, O Lord God, there, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. And then finally over in chapter 9, verse 2. The Lord appeared to him a second time. This morning I submit to you as we kind of summarize Solomon's life, he had a couple things going for him. Number one, he had a godly heritage. He was born into a family that knew God. His father was King David, the first good king of the nation of Israel. He grew up in a home where he'd seen firsthand what happens when you obey and disobey God. This morning, some of you have a godly heritage. Some of you have been blessed to grow up in godly homes. There's a lot of people 
even in America, a lot of Christians that, that don't have that heritage. Some of them have found Christ as their Savior later in life, but they don't have the heritage of growing up in a godly family. Solomon had that advantage. He grew up knowing, knowing that you don't fool around with God, or God might kill you back in those days. The second thing about Solomon that I note is that not only did he have a godly heritage, but he had unique opportunities. His father, David, had wanted to build the temple, but God said, you're not going to do it. I'm going to let your son, Solomon, do it. So he had the privilege of building the building that the glory of God would come down and fill. He watched that happen as God filled the Holy of Holies. And then, as far as his opportunities... The fact that God appeared to him twice in human form and said, what do you want? And God said, you've got it. So that's the background this morning to Solomon. Now we're going to look at chapter 10, verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Could you imagine what it would be like to be famous for your knowledge of God and for your wisdom? I mean, it blows my mind. I can't comprehend if people thought of the name Brian Shuffler and thought, you know, he is so wise, I just want to go hear him talk. Now, those of you that know me know there are people who, who say, I know Brian Shuffler, I just want to go read his dumb Facebook post. But that wasn't the reputation that Solomon had. Solomon, people wanted to go on vacation and hear him talk. Verse 3, Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. Here was a guy that had the wisdom to explain to a pagan queen all of the answers to her questions of life. Then we drop down to verse 23. It says that King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon. Pretty impressive guy. If ever there was anybody that shouldn't have drifted from God, it was Solomon. If ever there was anybody that had the perfect opportunity to keep his relationship with God, close and intimate and intact, it should have been this guy. There was nothing he couldn't understand. There was nothing he couldn't manipulate. There was nothing he couldn't buy. He had it all. And yet, we're going to see that he drifted from God. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. I submit to you this morning that the beginning stage of Solomon's drifting was one little choice or decision in his life. Keep your finger here in chapter 11 and turn back to chapter 3, and we're going to see what that one decision that Solomon made that started him drifting. Chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married his daughter. You see, the Old Testament scriptures in the, book, in, in, the, in, the old, in the old days told them that they were not to intermarry with foreign wives. 
Solomon knew that. And yet, when he was young, he began to drift. And there was a reason that the scripture said, don't intermarry with foreign women, verse 2 of chapter 11. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. They will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Scripture is pretty specific. Don't marry foreign women. They're going to cause you to drift and go astray. Verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. They did exactly what the scriptures said would happen. Can you imagine having 700 wives? I mean, he should have known right there he was headed for trouble. And he's got another 300 women there just for his pleasure. This guy had a 1,000 women in his life. Now, I did a little math. If you assume that Solomon slept six hours a night, and we assume that he worked and only had half of his waking hours to spend with one of the women in his life, if you do the math, each of these 1,000 women got three hours and 15 minutes of his time a year. I mean, we're talking some in-depth relationships here. And we, as history has gone on, would look back at Solomon and say, Solomon, get a clue. Don't you see where you're headed? And yet Solomon was the wisest, most godly man that had walked the earth. And he missed it. In our lives, we like to think, well, we're so slick. We're so careful. It's just a little bit of sin. It won't slip up on me. I'll keep it under control. And folks, when I read the rest of Solomon's biography here, it scares me. Look at verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Exactly what the scriptures had said would happen. Verse 7. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Do you get what's happening here? The guy who in his early years built the temple for the God, now later in life is building temples for pagan gods. What's going on here, Solomon? What was God's response? Verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Verse 11, so the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decree which I've commanded you, I most certainly will tear the kingdom away from you. Wow. Solomon, how did you wake up one day and find yourself here? And folks, that's the thought that scares me. To realize that one day I could wake up 
and find myself far from God. So this morning, I'd like us to to ponder the question, how does it happen? How do you start out well in life and end up a disaster? It's a serious question. How do you start out building the temple for the God and end up building temples for 700 pagan gods? Blows my mind. Well, I submit to you three things this morning. Number one, it begins with a thought. And the thought is this. I know I shouldn't do this thing, but I don't see any harm in it. I know it's not the right thing. I know it's not what the Word of God says, but I don't see any harm. In Solomon's life, it's, well, I know what the Scripture says about foreign wives, but I'm not going to worship them. I'm not going to go off the deep end. I'm just going to marry one to solidify the safety of our kingdom. It's a good decision. I'm in control. It's not that he didn't know the truth and that it displeased God. But he started the thought process that he could play games with God. That if I do enough good over here, God will overlook the fact that I'm disobedient in this one area of marrying a foreign wife. In our lives, it looks like this. I know I shouldn't go out with this guy from work, but we're just going out as friends. To think, as a, which, for which I think as opposed to what? Or in our lives, it sounds like this. Well, I know I shouldn't be watching some of this stuff on television, but it's, it's just entertainment. It doesn't affect me. In our life, it sounds like this. Well, yeah, I know I missed my quiet time yesterday. Well, if you want to be technical, it has been three months. But I'm still going to church. I'm still teaching Sunday school. I'm still on the worship team. It's okay. I've got it under control. In our lives, it sounds like this. Well, I know that I shouldn't be spending that time with the boss, but he's, he's so good to me. I know his wife, you know, there's nothing, nothing's going to happen. And we make a decision in our life that starts us down a path of drifting. A, a decision that left unchecked leads to spiritual disaster. You know what, folks, in in my life, I make hundreds of decisions every day. Most of them are pretty insignificant. You know, the alarm clock goes off, and I have to make the decision. Am I going to get up? Am I going to sleep in? Am I going to hit the snooze button? Then when I decide I'm going to get up, I have to decide, you know, am I going to leap out of bed, or am I going to crawl out of bed? And then I have to decide, you know, am I going to shower first this morning or am I going to eat first this morning? Every day, we all make hundreds of little insignificant decisions in our life. But I submit to you this morning that many of those decisions, if we make the wrong one, can be the beginning of a process of drifting if left unchecked. And it scares me. It all boils down to the question Will I be obedient to God even if I don't see the consequences of disobedience? You see, Solomon thought, yeah, I've got one wife that's a pagan, but nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to drift. And she thinks because she doesn't, he doesn't, he thinks because he doesn't see any immediate consequences that there aren't any. 
It's like the teenage girl who, growing up, mom always taught her, you know, if you eat fattening stuff, you're going to get fat. Uh, Something I guess moms would say. But one day, this teenage girl has a craving for chocolate. And so she goes down to the Big Dipper, down here in Almond, like some of you have done. And um, she gets the biggest double chocolate, double scoop chocolate sundae that they sell. And she woofs it down in one sitting. Who knows how many calories? But mom has told her if she eats that kind of stuff, she's going to get fat. So she, she woofs that, that Sunday down. She goes home. She immediately gets on the scales in the bathroom. And she looks down and she says, I didn't gain any weight. My mom's been wrong all these years. She told me if I eat this stuff, I'm going to get fat. And she thinks because there aren't any immediate consequences that there aren't any. And that's what happened with Solomon. He married this one foreign woman, and life was still going fine. Things were still, still going smoothly in the nation. So it starts with a thought. Well, as time rolls on, thoughts become attitudes. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. The Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude. He's playing mind games with God. He's thinking, well, God, you know, I've got a foreign wife. Well, God, if you want to be totally accurate and totally honest, there are 700 of them. But God, remember, I built the temple. I did all this for you. The nation is at peace, God. That hasn't happened too many times in the the history of our nation. And he thinks because there aren't any immediate negative consequences of his wrong choice that there aren't any. He starts thinking his attitude becomes God's not concerned about specifics. God's concerned about my spiritual batting average. Now some of you, probably only a few of you know that yesterday spring training started for Major League Baseball teams and had their first games yesterday. And I'm excited to see how my Los Angeles Dodgers do this year. But, um, you know, if you're, a, if, if you're a baseball player and you bat 350, you're probably headed for the Hall of Fame. But the person who bats 350 could be striking out 65% of the time. And they'd still get elected to the Hall of Fame because when it comes to batting averages, it's the overall. It's not how you do on the individual at bat. And Solomon starts thinking that way. His, at, his attitude becomes, well, you know, God, I know I've made a wrong decision over here, but, you know, I've, I've got more right ones over here. And he starts going to a wedding, and another wedding, and another wedding, and another wedding. And they're all his. Man, how would you like to have gone to 700 weddings? And they're all yours. I mean, he should have known right there that he had a problem. And we would look at Solomon. And we would say, Solomon, how did that happen? Get a clue? You know, didn't you catch on by the 10th wedding? Didn't you catch on by the 143rd wedding? 700 of them? And then you've got another 300 women you're not even legally married to? Solomon was the wisest, most godly man in history, and he missed it. So it starts with a thought. 
the thought becomes an attitude. And then we see that the attitude turns into a way of life. What's his lifestyle at the end of his life? He's building pagan temples for pagan gods. Dead, meaningless idols. Solomon, what happened? How'd you get here? You had a godly heritage. You had great opportunities. You were intimate with God. And now you're an embarrassment to your family and your nation. This morning, I'd like to think that I'm too smart. I'd like to think that I'm too careful that it couldn't happen to me. You know, folks, God is a patient God. Ever thank God for his patience with us when we make wrong choices and do stupid, disobedient things? But you know, this morning, the enemy is also patient. Now, one of the differences between Satan and God is God is omniscient, Satan isn't. But Satan's got a lot of helpers. And Satan knows that in our lifetime, if he can get us to drift a little bit this year, and a little bit next year, and a little bit next year, and a little bit next year, that 30 years down the line, we can wake up and find ourselves far from God. Satan's goal is destruction for our life. And folks, we're all candidates. And just because I've been in vocational ministry for all these years doesn't mean that it couldn't happen to me. That I couldn't wake up someday and and find out, whoa, how'd that happen? How'd I get here? Over the years, I've taken a lot of groups camping to a place in the Adirondack Mountains called Stillwater Reservoir. Probably spent 35 weeks of my life on that lake with teenagers, both with church groups and with camp groups. Uh, a few years ago, I made, a, made the decision uh, to, that I was past that stage of, of my life in ministry. But Stillwater Reservoir is basically state land all around the lake, with the exception of the end where the parking lot is. And there's some houses and a store at the parking lot there. And we get there, and we would unlaunch my boat at the dock there at the end of the lake. The campsites that we used the most frequently were about three miles out the lake on the north shore. Now, I don't know who named Stillwater Reservoir. It was obviously nobody that had ever spent any time there. Because Stillwater Reservoir runs east-west, And when you start out at the western shore, you know, it's not too bad. But as you move eastward, the the west winds pick up, and it can get pretty rough and choppy out there. And many times over the years, camping there, we would launch my boat at the dock. We'd get in the water. I'm behind the steering wheel of my boat, and I pull away from the dock, and I hit a wave. And I get knocked two degrees off course to the right. And I make a course correction with the steering wheel of my boat. Then as soon as I do that, I hit another wave, and I get knocked two degrees off course to the left. And I make a course correction. And you know, that's the entire trip 
out to our campsite. It's one of constant course corrections. And you know, folks, that's the Christian life. Very little of that three-mile trip out to our campsite is my boat headed directly at the campsite that I'm aiming for. But it's constantly turning to the left a little, correcting to the right. But you know what happens if I don't make one of those two-degree course corrections? If I pull out from the dock and I get knocked two degrees off course, at the time it seems pretty insignificant. But as time and distance are magnified as a result of that choice, if I don't make that two-degree course correction when I do, by the time I get three miles down the lake, I'm not going to be at the campsite on the North Shore. I'm going to be half a mile away at a campsite on the South Shore. And I'm going to think, how'd that happen? Well, the process started with one little choice to not correct the boat when I hit that first wave. And that's the Christian life. This morning, in your life, do you need to make a course correction? You know, as I, as I stand here this morning and look out over the congregation, probably this morning there are few, if anybody here, that's 180 degrees off course. If you were, you probably wouldn't be here this morning. As I look out over the congregation this morning, there probably aren't many of you that are 90 degrees off course. Because again, if you were, you might have made the decision to sleep in and not come to church this morning. But that question I have for you is, are you two degrees off course? And you see, the danger is it's all a part of the same process. The only thing that's different is the magnification of time and distance. This morning in your life, what kind of correction is it that you might need to make? Is it just a little thought? Has that thought evolved into an attitude? Or has that attitude become a way of life? This morning, the question I have for you is, are you, you willing to do business with God? Are you willing to make that course correction? What is it that God wants us to do? 1 John 1.9 states it so well. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And maybe there's somebody here this morning that God wants to make today a memorial in your life. A day that someday future you'll be able to look back and say, on that February morning in 2017 in the sanctuary at Alfred Allman Bible Church, that's where I made the course correction that I needed to make. That's the day that I took the step to grab that steering wheel of my boat that, that had just started off course, just some little thing that I, that I was doing that I knew wasn't what the Scripture said, and that's the day I made the course correction. You know, if we put off course corrections, it becomes a little difficult, more difficult as time goes on. 
If I don't make that correction with my boat the first time I hit the wave and I hit a second wave and get knocked another two degrees, I hit another wave, get knocked another two degrees, I got to make a lot more effort to turn that boat than if I'd made the turn the first time. When I read the story of Solomon, to me, it's a blinking, flashing, warning light. Beware. Watch out. Danger. Because if it could happen to him, it could happen to me. And if it could happen to him, it could happen to every one of us in this room. There's nobody that reaches the point in our Christian life that we're not vulnerable to drifting. It's not I'm too slick. It's not I'm in control. Before we close in prayer this morning, maybe you're here this morning and you've never really begun that three-mile course out to the campsite. Maybe you have been around church and hung around Christianity, uh, but you've never really got in the boat. And if that's you this morning, the, the the step that God wants you to take is to to get in the boat, to begin that relationship with him. By coming to the point that you acknowledge that the scripture says that we're sinners, that because of our sin there's a wage or a penalty, but the good news is God sent Jesus to die for our sin, that we could have forgiveness, and that we could begin that journey to that campsite in glory. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we close this morning. Before I pray, I'd like to give you a moment to reflect. Maybe this morning your greatest fear in life isn't that you would drift from God. Maybe it's something else. This morning all I did is is share from my heart what one of my greatest fears is. But I wonder right now if God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you, tapping you on the shoulder and, and saying, you know, You knew the truth when you made that choice, that little decision. He's saying, yeah, you may not see any immediate consequences of that choice, but you've started a path that if left unchecked is going to lead to spiritual destruction. Talk to God right now. Whatever, whatever that area is in your life, I have no idea. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. You've hit a wave. You've got knocked off course. You're going to make it right today. Father God, thank you that you're a forgiving God. Thank you that we can't make choices in our life as as believers that we can't be forgiven for. Lord, you want us to come to your feet. Ask for forgiveness. And thank you that we have a promise from the God of the universe that if we do that, you'll forgive 
Lord, this morning, remind us that we're all vulnerable. It doesn't matter how long we've come to this church. It doesn't matter how many decades it's been since we began that spiritual journey, maybe as a child. It doesn't matter this morning if we're a teenager or a college student, an adult, a grandparent. God, we all make hundreds of little decisions every day. God, so many of them, if we make the wrong one, it starts us down a path of drifting. Lord, keep our eyes focused on that campsite. Lord, show us when we've hit waves. Help us as we live our Christian walk to make constant course corrections. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.